Hello and welcome to In the Know. This is your grateful host, Diane Schindler. This show brings to you writing tips, travel tips, and my views of life from savvy and thoughtful to quirky and humorous. Enjoy the show. That Rosie is taking Bucky to Oakdale, Ohio to meet her mother, Esther. In the previous novel, um, Rosie and Bucky were introduced by a judge and they're in the midst of a courtship that uh, is soon to result in a second marriage for two widowers who have been blessed to, to meet one another. They're also going to have brunch with Rosie's old friend, Marlene. So this, this scene is this. It was just on when Rosie got up quietly and ambled out to the living room to snuggle with Jocko on the couch. She felt a little wobbly on her feet and wondered why her head was throbbing. She knew it wasn't a hangover and didn't feel feverish or cold. Still, she wrapped a warm shawl around herself, then waited to hear from her friend Marlene about breakfast arrangements. Sure enough, Marlene called as scheduled. I can't believe my mother and Bucky are still asleep, Marlene. I'll wake Bucky in a while and we'll see you at 11 at Bob Evans. Oh my gosh, now I'm feeling nauseous. I'll call you when we leave, Marlene. Rosie started upstairs to the loft. She held onto the rail and fought off lightheadedness. Rise and shine, Bucky. It's going on nine. You must have been worn out by my mother's interrogation. Mm-hmm. I never sleep this late. Where's the shower? I'll hustle and be ready when you say. It's in the basement. I don't feel so great. Let me sit in the recliner till you come up. As they headed down the steps, Bucky said, I feel dizzy myself, Rosie, and a little nauseous. Maybe I'll feel better after I get cleaned up. After all, grubbiness is another symptom. Rosie rested until she heard the shower water turn off in the basement. Ten minutes passed, and Bucky still hadn't appeared. She headed down the basement stairs and knocked on the door of the knotty pine room that held the shower stall. She turned the knob, but the door wouldn't budge. She called out for Bucky, but only heard him moan. Then she realized his body was wedged against the door. Don't move, Bucky. I'm calling 911. There's something wrong in this house. I should wake my mom, too. Rosie made her way upstairs and called 911 on the house phone. My fiancé has fainted in the shower and we're both nauseated. Please send help right away, she said, giving their exact location. The dispatcher asked if they had smoke or carbon monoxide detectors. I don't know. This is my mother's house. Well, open all the windows and get everyone outside if you can, the dispatcher said. Help is on the way. Mom, you need to get up. We need to get out of the house, Rosie said, trying to rouse her mother from the bed. Lethargic, her mom staggered out under the covers. What? Do I have time for a cigarette? No, we need to get Bucky out, too. The medics are coming. It's carbon monoxide. Rosie slipped her mom's feet into her loafers, snatched her purse from the dresser, and carefully led her by the arm. Bucky slowly mounted the steep basement steps to the kitchen, 
He had a gash on his forehead above his left eye and was holding a washcloth against the wound. Outside, they heard the approaching sirens, multiple sirens. Oh my, Rosie, there are three ambulances, Esther shouted, looking out the window. Within minutes, firemen and EMTs were at the door, now opened wide. They rolled in three gurneys and teams of two attended each of the three adults. One by one, they were asked to lie on the rolling stretchers and be buckled in. Bucky's head wound was quickly dressed after everyone's blood pressure was checked and oxygen masks were placed over each of their faces. Rosie saw a local TV station van pull up to the curb as she was wheeled out the driveway. Within minutes, her gurney was shoved into the back of an ambulance. The paramedics closed the door and the ambulance pulled away from the curb. She heard someone tell the driver that Toledo Hospital was the closest. She heard sirens and knew Bucky and her mother were in the parade. Then she began to pray. Gratitude was the first thing on her mind. If they had not visited, her mother would have died in that house. start this podcast. <laughs> well, thank you, Diane. I mean, I was there when you were reading that. I was there oh. for two reasons. I was there for two reasons. One, because of your word choice. And I'm from Ohio. And we do have showers in the basement behind the naughty, naughty pine. <laughs> and my family, my brother, my sister, my mother, and I, after dad went to work, had carbon monoxide poisoning ourselves and obviously it's a real thing so thank you so much now that was from wives who kill right yes that's the novel can you tell us um i understand that this is like true crime it's almost in a way like historical fiction but it's tell me uh, about this book wives who kill Wives Who Kill is the second in a series featuring Dr. Rosie Klein as the forensic psychologist who's appointed to evaluate defendants who allegedly have committed heinous crimes. And um, so the, the boyfriend, Bucky, was introduced also in the first novel, The Christmas Slings. And this is true, they were introduced by a judge and they're in the throes of a, of a romance um, following the death of both of their spouses previously. And Rosie uh, ha is in private practice and has this big dog, black lab called Jocko, Labradoodle. And Bucky is baseball coach at the University of Toledo. So that's the, that's the setting for the story. And that's where um, you meet Rosie again and Bucky and Rosie are interwoven into the story of two tragic women. Part one of an of African-American woman who shot her abusive husband and part two with um, Air Force wife who was delusional and was suffocating her baby girls to prevent them from being sexually abused as she had been as a child. So two separate cases 
or which Rosie Klein was appointed to, to evaluate the defendants in terms of their mental health. That's Dr. Kay Walters. She's a retired clinical forensic psychologist from Ohio. She was in private practice for over 40 years and taught psychology classes at Sinclair Community College and at the University of Dayton. She's married and enjoys being a wife and a mother, a yaya, which is Greek for grandmother, and a friend to many. She and her husband have been on seven mission trips and are actively involved at the Fairway Christian Church at the Villages in Florida. Now she's now, quote, sort of refired, she says, as the published author of Christian inspirational books, as well as her soon to be launched crime novel, the third one, uh, Husbands Who Kill, watch for that. She also served as academic dean of Casa Hope International, where she taught men who have mostly served time for alcohol and drug offenses. Dr. Walters also enjoys playing golf. She enjoys games, bookstores, beaches, sunsets, gospel, and 60s music. She belongs to the Florida Writers Association, the Word Reavers International Incorporated, and served at one time as the treasurer of the Writers League of the Villages. Let's go back and hear more. In the first book, The Christmas Slayings, you know, we still have that uh, Dr. Rose Klein character. And I want to remind the audience that Phyllis did a podcast before where we talked about her book, The Christmas Slangs. Now I'm going to have a link to that podcast in the show notes in case you want to refer to it. And in that previous podcast, she did a great job of telling us what exactly a forensic, what a forensic psychologist does. I'm going to ask her to explain that again, Phyllis. So tell us about forensic psychology. The forensic psychologist is appointed by the court, meaning the judge, at the request of someone like a prosecuting attorney or a defense attorney to assess their, their client, the defendant, for a variety of reasons. For example, if the, the defense attorney doesn't believe that his client understands the the nature of the charges against her because she's retarded or has emotion, such severe mental distress that she doesn't understand the charges and, and the consequences. And so she also can't assist in her defense because she can't look at, at a witness and say to her attorney, that witness is lying you know, she doesn't have the capacity to assist in her defense. So that might be a competency evaluation. The other evaluation has to do with state of mind at the time of the offense, which is legal sanity. It doesn't necessarily mean the person is crazy. It, it's a legal sanity, which means they appreciated the wrongfulness at the time of the crime. And again, they are um, able to understand the, the choices that they have in terms of sentencing, in terms of 
going to trial in terms of jury jury selection versus having a three judge panel instead of a jury, things like that, that mm -hmm. a lawyer uh, or a prosecuting attorney uh, are interested in. So forensic psychologist is appointed to go in one-on-one -on -one and then review all the materials, all the, the witness statements, the police reports, anything, uh, collateral interviews with family members and, and people that the, the defendant has worked with or gone to school with or what have you. And you did so this, that, this was your job. Yes, yeah. private practice, but appointed by the court to complete these evaluations. So I met, I would meet numerous times directly with the defendant and then also with other resources in, in coming up with my um, recommendations, conclusions. So that's why when you're, you're writing Wives Who Kill, this is based on actual events in which you were involved, but you've changed the names and you've added some little, some fiction here and there, but the story is the story is the story. So before we go to that, though, I want to ask you how you got involved originally in forensic psychology, and then how long were you involved in forensic psychology? Well, forensic psychology isn't always related to the criminal court. I started out in the domestic family court system, where as a private psychologist, I was uh, appointed to determine the best interest of the child in terms of parental time and care of the, of the child or children. So it started that way, but some of the lawyers, they, um, in a small town, um, they don't just uh, focus on one aspect of law. They might do some family law, they might do some criminal law. So it just kind of developed from one, one court to another. And the way that they usually met me was because as a private practitioner, someone in their own family maybe had been referred to me, a doctor or someone, a school psychologist, to um, work with uh, personal problems of someone that they near or dear to them that they love or someone that they knew that had worked with me. Mm -hmm. So in the community, reputation grows. That's how, how it evolves. But um, my education began it, in the 60s. You either be, became a teacher, a nurse, or a secretary, right? right. So, I became, so I first became a teacher, and from that became a guidance counselor. And from that, went back to school and got a PhD and went into the, the clinical practice, private practice of psychology. When I, when I left... Um, I was in a group, I was the owner of a group practice, three owners, and um, we had 15 therapists of all different kinds that were contractors with us that did day in and day out counseling of privately referred clients. Yeah, so, so boy, um, you, boy, you have the background for these books, for sure. And I want to ask you then about the character that you referred to that first was in the Christmas slangs, your first book. Now she is in also your second book, Wives Who Killed. Her name is Rosie Rose Klein. And I have to ask you, are you, are you Phyllis? Are you Rose Klein? Tell us the truth. Yes. I'm Dr. Rosie Klein, colorful life. I'm, I'm widowed and dating Bucky Walk. 
Walker, and he's the University of Toledo baseball coach because I made him so. He really yeah. wasn't. And we were introduced by a judge. That's true. So in book one, we begin the romance. And then in this book, which takes place six months later, we're continuing that romance. And now he's going to be promoted. I asked him, because we've been married 23 years now, I said, what do you want to retire? What do you want me to do with you? He said, oh, promote me. I want to be athletic director. So in <laughs> Lives Who Kill, he's being promoted to athletic director. So that's the lightheartedness. I have to do something because it's hard to sleep at night when I write I'm these sure. intense stories yeah. about these poor women. So there's a lot of levity in the book related to uh, Bucky and Rosie. So yeah, that's sweet. Yeah. That's sweet. And, I, and, you know, when you're talking about it right now, you switch in and out of fiction. So that's what's so yes. good about it, because and it is fun, don't you think, that you can make you whoever you want to be. Yes. And however you want to look. You know, I, I would, if I did that, I would be tall and thin and younger. Yes. <laughs> Imagine what book three will be like, because my editor said that every good writer has to write I have five Christian inspirational books, and then I have these two um, true crime, um, but they are faith-based. You heard me yeah. say that she was praying gratitude that her mother would have died that's a true story by the way that segment is true we did go to my mother's and we did save her life by being overcome by carbon monoxide oh that's God. true and we have a series of questions that lead us forward in this discussion. And I listed this question as you listed this question. And I think it's really interesting given the notion that we just said, are you Rosie Klein? Are you Dr. Rosie Klein? And you said, yes. So now this question says, how did you meet Bucky? Your husband in real life, is that his name, Bucky? It, no, his name is Dan. Actually, Bucky was Dan's dad's name is Bucky. But um, well, a judge introduced us and the that happened in book one. I actually had that in there. He and that's introduced. true. That's a true yeah, story. That's true. And he was Bucky's childhood friend. Actually, we met and married in five months, but um, so far uh, that's not happening quite that quite that swiftly in my novels. But and and that judge, um, Jocko, really is his dog. But I love this dog, so I made Jocko my dog. His big black labradoodle with big brown eyes. And um, so he's my dog in these books. Nice. So. Now let's get into some of the meat of this, these two stories about Sophie, Sophie's life. Tell us about Sophie's, the background of Sophie's life and that case, but no spoilers though. Don't give everything away. Okay, well, Sophie um, grows up um, she's African-American and she grows up and she quits school after the eighth grade and she works for um, a music professor in this little town in Ohio 
and she steals his mother's, I mean, his wife's pearls and gives them to her mother to have something nice to wear to church. So that's how that, her beginning in crime with good intentions, but the, the um, beginning of crime started there. And then um, she goes on and she gets involved in criminal activity because of kids. Well, she gets involved with a boy and they steal things and then return them for refunds. Oh, I and see. So, yeah, so he he has like some $700 camera or something expensive and she takes it in and she's caught. So it's more than $300. It's like a felony. He yeah. takes off. So she spends time in, in juvenile. And then she tries to find these kids when she gets out and uh, ends up with uh, prostitution and drugs. So her life eventually she ends up in a Christian rehab place. That's when she, she comes out of that and she meets the man that convinces her to be a nanny for his children. And that's how she meets Farid, who is the one that abuses her. And it really, he alienates her from anyone. She isolates her. People don't know she's being abused because he'll strike her in places where um, publicly, you, you know, the sternum or the back, the thighs, where where the blows are not visible in your with your clothing. So she's kind of a pathetic, um, dependent woman. And this is all true. What you're telling me is all true. And of course, you've changed the names. It's true. The part, there are lapses in the childhood that I didn't, that I created because I didn't know, you know, like you said, well, so what did she do? Well, she had to support herself. She had to be doing some drugs and prostitute. You know what I mean? Yeah, so you, I understand. In the gaps, yeah. But um, about him, it's true. He uh, literally picks her up off the sidewalk saying, asking her if she was looking for a job and if she'd like to be a nanny for his kids and she jumps at the chance. And that's the beginning of, of a, a tragic eight year relationship. But she is really fond of the little boys and they're fond of her. But that's, I guess, the best part of a horrible situation. And I don't know what happened to that woman. Um, sometimes I know after they're either convicted or found innocent or whatever, after they're sentenced, sometimes I know, and sometimes I have no further contact with them. Like, as I've said to you, the, in my first novel, I am pen pals with the young woman from the first novel who's still in prison as we speak. And you were saying to me before we started recording that she's been, she's 49 years old now. And uh, she's been, how, how long has she been in prison? 29 years. 29 years. And she and her fellow inmates have just sewn these masks for yes. the pandemic. Tell us about that. Yes. She feels like God has a purpose for her life. She just, they just completed sewing 2 million masks 
and 20,000 disposable gowns. They must, the prison must have a contract with the yeah. government. Now, was, she, was she scheduled, I mean, was she uh, convicted and sentenced to life imprisonment for what she had done? Yes, without parole. Without parole, so that's, yeah. So that's real interesting. So what I'm hearing, I'm just kind of summarizing. So in the first novel, the first book, I should say, that you wrote about um, this woman, yes. Her, in the book, she's Angel Morgan, but that's not her real name. Uh, as far as I know, I'm the only contact to the outside world at this oh, point. Oh, boy. She didn't, she didn't shoot anybody. She was state's witness against the shooters, but she got the same sentence as one of them. The other one had the death penalty, and he was executed about nine years ago. So now tell us about the second story about Hannah. Well, Hannah, um, to the outside world, looked normal, average. I I shouldn't say normal. I should say like an average girl in an average family. Uh, But she had a very harsh father. And um, she harbored feelings of... um, from abuse, severe, distorted thoughts and feelings. And she married a a young man who she met in high school. Well, she moved to her grandparents in high school to be out of the harshness of her environment. So she was with her mother's parents and she looked pretty average there. And she got engaged to this young man and married him and he was in the Air Force. And so they left the area. And how much do you want me to tell you? No spoilers. Don't give me a spoiler. Should I say what she's charged with? No. I won't tell you what she's charged with. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, You're good with cliffhangers. You're good with cliffhangers. Yeah, but they do return to Ohio, and that's when she ultimately is charged, and some charges were dropped that had occurred out of state at a different Air Force base, you know, when they were living in base housing. Um, Those charges were dropped as long as charges were pursued. The deal was if you're going to pursue the same charges in Ohio, we'll drop those other charges. And so um, she is um, being charged in Ohio for. For murdering her children. Oh, my gosh. You are so good at cliffhangers. Phyllis, I can't wait. I'm telling you what, I want I want a copy of this book. You are so prolific. I've been watching you on Facebook and it wears me out to see all your posts. You're everywhere. You're presenting, you're writing, you're you're talking about your books and you're showing your books. And so how many books, and you sort of referenced this in the middle of our conversation today, but tell me, give me the names. Of all the books you've written, and you have two categories, right? Okay. My Christian inspirational books. The first one is entitled Worry, Fret, and Fear, dot, 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 no more, exclamation point. (laughs) And 
during this pandemic, I um, put, I changed the introduction. I made some of the exercises in it different. I used words like pandemic and COVID-19. And so now we have worry, fret, and fear no more. COVID-19 edition. It's, it's to overcome the habit of worrying and eliminate your fears. And I put out a study guide. So if I count that as my second book, you know, um, because people were wanting more than one book to pass on to friends because they had written in their own book, the little exercises. So by giving a study guide, a study guide available, it actually um, would mean that they would put their answers in a study guide and then they could pass the book on. Cost me some book sales, right? But yeah, I, I, well, and that's a really good thing to do because, you know, not only do you, so what I'm hearing you say is you're reading about grief and you're reading about how to avoid the fret and the worry. But at the same time, if you have a series of exercises, they have a way in which to work through what they've learned. That's so that's important. That's right. It's a six-week I generated a six-week challenge um, for them. And then the second book, Creating Balance and Purpose in Your Life. And that book, um, I have spoken to groups that were wanting to start over. You know, it's January, make resolutions. And looking at balance, meaning um, physical, mental, emotional, social, and spiritual. And you can't work on all those things at once. So again, I have exercises where you select two or three areas that you would like to work on to develop. And um, so that book, like I spoke to a a single Christians group in the villages, I think it was last January, before the pandemic, you know. Then the third book, which is Become a Beacon of Light, and reflect God's love. And that's the fruit of the spirit. And I talk about love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. And that book came about as a result of a speaking engagement that I had, this mega church outside the villages, North Lake Presbyterian Church. And it's on on their YouTube channel. Um, They had me as their keynote speaker at their retreat last year, just before all this shut down. And they asked me to write the book after. So the book is what I presented to them, keynote address. And it it deals with the the fruit of the spirit and working on some of those attributes, love, joy, peace, patience, God, whatever you feel lacking in Mm -hmm. that you could develop. So those are the Christian inspirational books that I've written. The reason I wrote The Christmas Slayings is because that woman was on my heart and my mind all those years. Mm-hmm. So I didn't intend to be a true crime writer, <laughs> but I wanted to tell her story. Then after I got into it, I thought of these women and many other women in similar circumstances. So I wanted to tell at least two more stories of uh of women who um, made poor choices based on what they thought was available to them. And that you're getting ready to do another book. 
Yes, the third in a series for Dr. Rosie Klein and Bucky Walker, and it's going to be Husbands Who Kill. Now, those literally are men who murdered their wives, where the wives who kill, it wasn't like Hannah, it wasn't her husband that she killed. And Sophie, um, we thought she was married to him, but he wasn't really legally her husband. So they are wives who kill, but the husbands who kill are really those who took the lives of their wives. So that's it. my work in progress as the writer. Work in progress. Have you, without giving any away any details, really, have you chosen who you're going to talk, who you're going to write about? Oh, yes. Yes, I have. And I've been stunned by researching the aftermath of um, their convictions. Um, just shocking to me. Um, but one, one was... Um, he, you know, he was violent and he, he broke, shattered his wife's kneecaps and she said she fell down the steps. That preceded him killing her. And then, um, but then after he did kill her, and I won't tell you the details because it, he basically reports her as missing, you know, how that goes. Yeah. And so, uh, and the second man, um, he, it, tried to say he had post-traumatic stress disorder and he thought that she was the Viet Cong coming toward him, that he had no recollection of shooting her. Um, but and his story is amazing in terms of overturned convictions and retrials and lots of quirky things that result in his life. So now I have in the back of Wives Who Kill, I have hotline numbers so that people who are interested in turning someone in that they think is it being trafficked or looking for help in alcohol addiction, um, domestic violence, things of that nature. I have hotline numbers in the back of this book Wives Who Kill, I have all the books that I've written and the, um, the storylines, well, not storylines, but well, some storylines, but the um, back covers of the books, I think, have been placed in this book along with the, the pictures with the titles. Um, there are always discussion questions in the back of my books so that book clubs might want to use the book as a means of conversation. And uh, I think that's pretty interesting what they would, the questions that they would be asking themselves and answering among themselves. So before we leave, I just want to remind the audience that uh, I will have all your information in the show notes, your email address, your links to your books, copies of your books, as well as your bio. And um, so if people want to contact you and so that you can present to them or if people want to know more about the, your books, they can contact you. Is there anything else you would like to talk about before we, before we leave today? Nope, just that I'm more than willing to speak at um, functions of organizations and to um, either speak on 
on one of the books, on the on the subject matter of one of the books, or um, I mean, the, actually, that Presbyterian Church they created. They they told me what they wanted me to talk about, and then after I talked about it, then they said, "Now write the books." They selected Become a Beacon of Light because of the darkness of what we're facing yeah. with the pandemic and everything. So I thank you very much. Thank for- you. This has been another treat, our second, my second treat to, to interview you and follow you and your prolific writing and your presentations. And I appreciate it so much, Phyllis. Thank you so much for listening to In The Know. If you would like to support the show, you can do so by subscribing and sharing it with your family and friends. You can like this episode, leave a comment, and even add a rating. Your support is very important to the success of In The Know. Thank you for listening and see you next time.